me on something sticky and wet, and I was in hell. My wife was seated in one of the kitchen chairs facing me tied to the bars at the back with thin cord. Each foot was in turn tied to a leg of the chair, and I thought her face, mostly concealed by her hair, seemed so awash with blood that no skin could be seen. Her head hung back so that her throat gaped open like a second mouth, caught in a silent dark red scream. Our daughter lay splayed across Susan, one arm hanging between her mother's legs. The room was red around them. Blood stained the ceiling and the walls as if the house itself had been mortally wounded. Susan had tried to run to get help for our daughter and herself, but she had made it no farther than the door. Then he had caught her, had grabbed her by the hair, and smashed her against the wall before dragging her, bleeding and in pain, back to the chair and to her death. Jenny faced the door, too, her hair hanging forward, obscuring her face. Her nightdress was stained by the flow from the deep cut in her throat. The toes of her naked feet dangled above the tiled floor. I could only look at her for a moment because Susan drew my eyes toward her in death as she had in life, even amid the wreckage of our time together. And as I looked upon her, I felt myself slide down the wall and a wail, half-animal, half-child, erupted from deep inside me. I gazed at the beautiful woman who had been my wife, and her bloody, empty sockets seemed to draw me in and envelop me in darkness. The moonlight shone through the window behind them, casting a cold glow over the gleaming countertops, the tiled walls, the steel faucets on the sink. It caught Susan's hair, coated her bare shoulders in silver, and shone through parts of the thin membrane of her skin, pulled back over her arm like a cloak, a cloak too frail to ward off the cold. First he had mutilated their bodies, and then he had cut off their faces. They questioned me in the same interrogation room where I had questioned others so many times before. When I gave my statement, Cole checked with the bartender from Tom's and confirmed that I was there when I said I was, that I could not have killed my own wife and child. Even then there were whispers. I was questioned again and again about my marriage, about my movements in the weeks coming up to the killings. I stood to gain a considerable sum in insurance from Susan, and I was questioned about that as well. According to the medical examiner, Susan and Jennifer had been dead for about four hours when I found them. Susan had died from severing of the carotid artery, but Jenny... Jenny had died from what was described as a massive release of epinephrine into her system causing ventricular fibrillation of the heart and death. Jenny, always a gentle, sensitive child, a child with a traitor-weak heart, had literally died of fright before her killer had a chance to cut her throat. She was dead when her face was taken, said the medical examiner. He could not say the same for Susan. I had a drunk's alibi. While someone stole away my wife and my child, I downed bourbon in a bar. But they still come to me in my dreams, sometimes smiling and beautiful as they were in life, and sometimes faceless and blooded as death left them, beckoning me further into a darkness where love is no place and evil hides, adorned with thousands of unseeing eyes and the flayed faces of the dead. I'd been sitting at the window of the coffee shop in Astoria, Queens for over 90 minutes now, watching the brownstone across the street, waiting for fat Ollie Watts to emerge from hiding. My patience was wearing thin. 
There was a $50,000 bond on Fat Ali, the result of a misunderstanding between Ali and the forces of law and order over the precise ownership of a 1993 Chevy Beretta, a 1990 Mercedes 300 SE, and a number of well-appointed sport utility vehicles, all of which had come into Ali's possession by illegal means. An eagle-eyed patrolman familiar with Ollie's reputation as something less than a shining light in the darkness of a lawless world spotted the Chevy under a tarpaulin and called for a check on the plates. They were false, and Ollie was raided, arrested, and questioned. He kept his mouth shut but packed a bag and headed for the hills as soon as he made bail in an effort to avoid further questions about who had placed the cars in his care. That source was reputed to be Salvatore Sonny Ferreira, the son of a prominent capo, There had been rumors lately that relations between father and son had deteriorated in recent weeks, but nobody was saying why. I wasn't sure why I had told Benny Lowe I would take the job. Benny was the minor league.